This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. This episode is a bit different from our usual fare in that it's devoted to the subject of art in church history. It's in no way intended to be a comprehensive review of religious art. We will instead take a cursory look at the development of art in the early centuries. Much has been written about the philosophy of art and As anyone who's taken an art history course in college knows, there's much debate that's ensued over what defines art. It's not our aim here to enter that fray, but instead to step back and to simply chart the development of artistic expression in the first centuries. It's to be expected that the followers of Jesus would get around to using art as an expression of their faith quickly in church history. Man is, after all, an emotional being, and art is often the product of that emotion. People who would convert from headlong hedonism to an austere asceticism didn't usually do so simply based on cold intellectualism. Strong emotions were involved. Those emotions often found their output in artistic expression. Thus, we have Christian art. Emotions and the imagination are as much in need of redemption and capable of sanctification as the reason and the will. We'd better hope so, at least, or we're all doomed to a grotesquely lopsided spiritual life. How sad it would be if the call to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind didn't extend to our creative faculty and to art. Indeed, the Christian believes that the work of the Holy Spirit after her or his conversion is to conform the believer into the very image of Christ. And since God is the Creator it's reasonable to assume that the Spirit would bend humanity's penchant for artifice to serve the glory of God and the enjoyment of mankind. Scripture even says that we are to worship God in the beauty of holiness. A review of the instructions for the making of the tabernacle make it clear that God's intention was that it be a thing of astounding beauty. And looked at from what we'd call a classical perspective, Nearly all art aims to simply duplicate the beauty of God as the first artist, made when he spoke and the universe leapt into existence. Historians tend to divide early church history into two large blocks, using the First Council of Nicaea in 325 as the dividing line. The Anti-Nicene Era runs from the time of the Apostles, known as the Apostolic Age, to that council at Nicaea. Then the post-Nicene era runs from the council to the medieval era. This was the time of the first of what are known as the seven ecumenical councils, the last of which is conveniently called the second Nicene council, which was held in 787. So the anti-Nicene era lasted just a couple hundred years, while the post-Nicene era was 500 It would be nice if art historians would sync up their timelines to this plan, but they divide the history of church art differently. They refer to the pre-Constantinian art, while from the 4th through the 7th centuries is referred to as early Christian art. The beginnings of identifiable Christian art are located in the last decades of the 2nd century. Now, it's not difficult to imagine that there had been some artistic expression connected to believers before that. 
It's just that we have no enduring record of it. Why is easy to surmise. Christians were a persecuted group and, apart from some notable exceptions, were for the most part comprised of the lower classes. Christians simply didn't want to draw attention to themselves on one hand, and on the other, well, there wasn't a source of patronage for art in service of the gospel. Another reason there wasn't much art imagery generated before the second century is because early generations of believers were mostly Jewish, with a long-standing prohibition of making graven images lest they violate the commandment against idolatry. By the mid-2nd century, the church had shifted to a primarily Gentile body. Gentiles had little cultural opposition to the use of images. Indeed, their prior paganism encouraged it. They quickly learned that they were not to make idols, but they had no reluctance to use images as symbols and representations to communicate the gospel and express their faith. The style of this early art is drawn from Roman motifs of the late classical style and is found in association with the burial of believers. While pagans generally practice cremation, the followers of Jesus shifted to burial as an expression of their hope in the resurrection. So outside Rome's walls near major roadways, numerous catacombs were excavated where Christians both met when the heat of persecution was up and where their dead were interred. Some of the oldest of Christian imagery is a simple outline of a ship or an anchor scratched into the wall of a crypt. Both were symbols of the church. The anchor is drawn from the New Testament book of Hebrews, which refers to the hope of the believer as an anchor of the soul. The ship was an apt picture for the church a vessel which is in the sea, but mustn't have the sea in it, just as the church is to be in the world, but the world is not to be in the church. Another symbol that was used to mark the resting place of Christians was the ubiquitous fish. As burial in the catacombs became de rigor, families carved out entire rooms for the burial of their members. Bodies were placed in marble sarcophagi, which over time were decorated with religious imagery symbols and scenes that were drawn from scripture. Missing from the art that was crafted by Christians at this time are the scenes that will later become so common. There are few nativity motifs, fewer crosses, and nothing depicting the resurrection. Now that's not to say that Christians in this early era didn't regard the cross and resurrection as central to their faith. The writings of the anti-Nicene fathers make it clear that they did. It's just that they hadn't made their way into artistic expression yet. Rather than pointing directly at Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, artists instead used Old Testament stories that foreshadowed the gospel. And so there are images of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, Jonah and the fish, Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, as well as Moses striking the rock all of these are depicted in frescoes and tomb paintings. The few images of Jesus from pre-Constantinian art we do have present him as the Good Shepherd, surrounded either by figures who likely represent the apostles, and symbols from nature, things like peacocks representing eternal life, vines representing fruitfulness, and doves which tend to represent purity and peace. 
Nothing happened in the way of distinctly Christian architecture until Constantine, for obvious reasons. Christians simply could not build their own places. Hey, when you're trying to avoid attention due to persecution, engaging in a construction project's probably not wise. But once the faith was removed from the banned list and the rulers of Rome showed the emergent faith favor, Christians began to shape their meeting places in a manner that maximized their utility while also adorning them with imagery identifying them as dedicated to the gospel. The discreet and out-of-the-way places that they'd met in before simply no longer served as suitable meeting places for the rapidly growing movement. After Christianity was allowed to own its own property, it raised local churches across the Roman Empire. There may have been more of this kind of building in the 4th century than there has been since, except, of course, during the 19th century in the United States. Constantine and his mother Helena led the way. The emperor adorned not only his new city of Constantinople, but also embarked on a campaign to secure the assumed holy places in the Middle East. Churches were erected using funds from his personal account as well as state funds. His successors, with the exception, of course, of Julian, known as the apostate, as well as numerous bishops and wealthy laymen vied with each other in building, beautifying, and enriching churches. The faith that had not long before been a cause of great persecution, well, it became a kind of game to compete in as the wealthy hoped to earn a higher place in heaven by the churches that they raised. Churches became a venue for bragging rights. The church father Chrysostom lamented that the poor were being forgotten in favor of buildings and recommended that it wasn't altars but souls that God wanted. Jerome rebuked those who trampled over the needy to build a house of stone. It might be assumed that Christians would adopt the form of their buildings that they were used to as pagans, that is, temples. Interestingly, they didn't. Most pagan temples were relatively small affairs intended to hold little more than the idol of the god or goddess that they were dedicated to. When pagans worshipped, they did so outdoors, often in a courtyard that was next to the temple. It wasn't until the 7th century that believers began to repurpose some of the larger, now-abandoned pagan temples for their own use. Even during Constantine's time, Christians began to use the layout of the secular basilica, the formal hall where a king or a ruler would hold court. The floor plan of one of these basilicas had a central rectangular hall called the nave with two side aisles. The main door was on one of the short sides of the nave, the opposite wall held the apse, where a raised platform was built for the altar, where the minister led the service. During the 4th century in Rome, saw 40 large churches built. In the new Rome of Constantinople, the Church of the Apostles and the Church of St. Sophia, originally built by Constantine, towered in majestic beauty. In the 5th century, both churches were dramatically enlarged by the Emperor Justinian. As I said earlier, in the 7th century, the now-abandoned pagan temples were turned over to Christians. In fact, the Emperor Phocas gave the famous Pantheon to Rome's Bishop Boniface IV. Anyone who's been on a tour of Israel ought to be familiar with the term Byzantine, because a good many of the ruins that Christian tourists visit are labeled as Byzantine in architecture and era. The Byzantine style originated in the 6th century, 
and in the East it continues even to this day. It's akin to the influence of French classicism of Louis XIV and its impact on Western architecture. The main feature of the Byzantine style is a dome spanning the center of a floor plan that is cruciform. Now, let me see if I can help you picture this. Imagine a classic cross laid on the earth. The long beam is the central nave, with the cross piece forming the transverse sides, which make up chapels. Suspended over the intersection of the main and cross beams is a dome decorated with frescoes of biblically rich imagery. Previous basilicas tended to be flat, blocky affairs, earthbound in their ponderance. The Byzantine basilica lifted the roof and drew the eye to that dome, which seemed to pierce heaven itself. The eye was drawn upward in the Byzantine basilica. That idea would then be perfected centuries later in the soaring ceilings and arches of Europe's Gothic cathedrals. The most perfect execution of the Byzantine style is found in the Hagia Sophia, the Church of the Holy Wisdom in Istanbul. It was built by the Emperor Justinian in the 6th century on the plans of Anthemius and Isidore. It's 220 feet wide, 252 feet long, with a 180 feet diameter dome supported by four gigantic columns rising 169 feet over the central altar. The dome is so constructed that the court biographer Procopius described it as being suspended from heaven by golden chains. The cross, which today stands as the universal symbol for Christianity, wasn't used in artifice until at least the late 4th century. The historical record suggests that Christians were making the sign of the cross on their foreheads, over their eyes, mouths, and hearts, as early as the 2nd century, but they didn't make permanent images of it until later. And then we find some church fathers urging Christians not to make a magical talisman of it. The Emperor Julian the Apostate accused Christians of worshipping the cross. Chrysostom wrote, quote, The sign of universal detestation, the sign of extreme penalty, has become an object of desire and love. We see it everywhere, on houses, roofs, walls, in cities and villages, in markets, along roads, in deserts, on mountains and in valleys, on the sea, ships, books, weapons, garments, in honeymoon chambers, at banquets, on gold and silver vessels, engraved on pearls, in paintings, on beds, the bodies of sick animals and the possessed, at dances of the merry and in the brotherhood of monks." Unquote. It isn't until the 5th century that we find the use of the crucifix. That is, a cross that isn't bare, it's now holding the figure of an impaled Christ. <laughs> 